Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your goodness and um, that we do get to come and, and sing and, and praise and, and sing together and lift our voices to you. But uh, more than anything else, we are thankful for the security and the, and, uh, the safety that you offer us uh, when we uh, seek it. Um, and Father, we are thankful for the, uh, the chance to just to declare your name, but uh, not in some magical sense, but because it represents uh, your character. It represents your giving, your love, and your grace. And so, Lord, it is good to be together in fellowship with your family, to pray together, to worship together, to sing together, to hear your scripture read. And so, Father, we want to give the time to you, and, and uh, we ask for healing of uh, so many uh, grieving hearts um, in our church uh, this morning. And uh, for various reasons, we ask that you bring them comfort and hope and, uh, and know that our future is secure in you. So, Father, we are doing this out of faith. We are taking the step to trust you, that your word is secure, that your word is uh, truthful, and that it's, uh, it speaks to our hearts. And so we are counting on that. And uh, we ask that you help us to live lives of trust, uh, not only on Sunday morning, but also on Monday morning as we uh, go about our business and go about our work and our recreation and our lives, our duties, that uh, we be empowered by the Spirit uh, to reflect your goodness. And we ask this in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are uh, continuing on in our summer series of Why Christianity Makes Sense. You're probably tired of seeing these slides after a while. Uh, let's see, I think I'm on here. Am I on? I'm not on, Kit Christian. Are we going to restart it? Or <laughs> is, it, is it something wrong with it? Okay. <laughs> I will cue you from here. Uh, by now, we know that uh, we've seen this slide, uh, I guess, five or six times now already. Uh, the, the, what we've done is tried, if you're, if you're kind of new to the area or new to the, the services, uh, we are looking at seven values that um, uh, was identified in a workshop that I'd gone to by N.T. Wright as seven trans uh, transcendent values that is common to all people, common to all human beings that, that seem to transcend culture, language, borders. Uh, there's something that's a part of us, and it seems to, to, to me that all these things have a reason. They point to something else, that they point to what we would call God, of course, the person, the creator God. And, uh, and not only do they point to it, though, but they're also broken. And we struggle with them because we can't seem to get it right. Uh, this morning, we are going to be talking about uh, freedom, and I think if there's any uh, two topics that have dominated the airways in the last few months. Well, one would also uh, obviously be the coronavirus, the epidemic, uh, but the other would probably be freedom, even before the pandemic. Uh, that seems to be a hot topic, uh, just where, about what it is and how to, and we haven't really figured out how do we define it, how do we balance it, uh, how do we argue over it. We can't seem to come to any sort of conclusion on that. So I'm just going to give you a few examples uh, in the world that just to prove my point on this. Uh, the first one is Brexit. Uh, I had a friend, we were talking with a friend, and he was asking me what my sister, my, my sister, my daughter and my son-in-law 
thought about Brexit. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my daughter is married a Brit. She did graduate school in England and fell in love with a Brit. So what are you going to do? Uh, so she lives over there. And, and uh, the two of them, they asked me what my, my daughter and son-in-law thought about Brexit. And I said they were totally opposed to it. I mean, they're really against it. They're, they were disheartened that it passed. Uh, they're, they're disheartened that it's gone forward and it's going, going on. And uh, they just really were, uh, they both voted against it, uh, against doing it. And my friend says, well, I believe in freedom. <laughs> Implying that evidently Pete and Katie do not believe in freedom and they prefer oppression, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so I, I told this to my son-in-law, Pete, and he was explaining to me, he says, well, let me, this is how it's kind of laid out. Uh, he says, what your friend did is he did get it right. It is about freedom. And he said, you know, he works for the Fishmongers uh, uh, Guild, which is a guild that goes back to, like, to the 12th century. So they're real involved. He's real involved in the fish industry. And he said, yes, the fishing industry, the fishermen, the sellers, there are restrictions and regulations that have been placed on them. And they do kind of resent that it comes from Brussels and not London. And he says, yes, it does restrict their, their freedom. But at the same time, they have the freedom to sell their product to every country in Europe without customs, without uh, bureaucracy, without inspections, that kind of thing. They, can, they don't have to worry about their, their fish going bad on the ship while it waits through custom, while it waits to be, be unloaded through all the bureaucracy and all the paperwork. And uh, he says that they, they're free to do that. So there is freedom there. And uh, then it says on a personal level, we have the, the fluidity of the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland that's, that's helped create peace because there's an economic dependence on each other. Uh, he said, in a very personal level, my grandmother's caretaker may have to move back to Poland because she doesn't have the $3,000 to pay for a work visa and a residency. So, you know, you have, to, you have to balance that out. In 2011, you remember that there was this uprising in Africa and the Middle East by mainly a lot of younger people, uh, well-educated people who wanted more democracy, more, uh, more freedom, more uh, women's rights, those kinds of things. And uh, the Western journalists called it the, the Arab Spring. And this was going to be this big movement. And it was almost as if we could just, if we just get rid of a few dictators, then the world would be more de democratic, there would be more equity, there would be more rights, and we'd just have a better, freer world. As if, right? <laughs> it did not happen. So you can't, I mean, you don't hardly even see the spring, much less any kind of sense of democracy there. So there is right. I don't know, Christian, can you go to the next slide there? Um, there uh, what we're kind of calling this, this message this morning, the freedom agenda. Uh, but the confusion, there is a freedom confusion. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, go to the next one here. Vladimir Lenin says, everyone talks about freedom. Freedom for who and freedom to do what? You can go into the next slide. He had the right question, he just had the wrong answer, okay? Uh, you can go on to the next one. We, uh, that's, that's really, the big, the big question is, the freedom confusion is, go ahead, Christian, uh, is freedom to versus freedom from. That is where the debate falls. That's where the issue falls. That's where the conflict comes from, freedom to or freedom from. We even fought a civil war over this. Uh, the the uh, Confederate, and I'm a fifth generation Southerner, I'm a fourth generation Texan, you know, so, but the Confederacy, we have, we have to admit this dark chapter in our history. And uh, the slaveholding states argued that they had the freedom to own slaves. 
The non-slave-holding states said, uh, well, no, there's a group of people here, namely the Africans, who we believe are entitled to freedom from slavery. And we fought a war over that. Uh, Christopher Miminger, if you want to go to the next slide, wrote, he wrote the Declaration of Independence from the Federal Union. Okay, he's a South Carolina legislature, and he wrote this. He says he's accusing the northern states, the non-slaveholding states, of showing increasing hostility to slavery, whose avowed object is to disturb the peace by inciting thousands of slaves to leave their homes and elevating to citizens black persons who, by the supreme law of the land, are incapable of becoming citizens and the submersion of the Constitution. So one group of people said, we have the right to own slaves. The other group of people said, no, they have the right, they have the freedom from harm. They are entitled to freedom from slavery, from disenfranchisement, from silencing, from killing, from beatings, etc. They have the freedom from being shackled. And that's really the issue, freedom to or freedom from. And we see it in the, in the personal level, too. We see as teenagers grow, we kind of, those older folks kind of smile because they're free from childhood. And uh, so they, they say, we're, gonna, we're finally free to be adults and free to do all kinds of things. And what do they do? They wear the same T-shirts, the same jeans, the same sneakers of everybody else because they, have, they want the freedom from ridicule, right? Or take it a little more seriously, they start experimenting with chemicals, tobacco, alcohol, drugs, etc. And they have the freedom to do that. But then we all know that then they need the freedom from the enslavement and the addictions. So you've got that in this line of this, this freedom from, freedom to. But this instinct that we have for freedom, this, this drive that we all have for freedom, we all agree that freedom is necessary for human flourishing. And that instinct comes from the presence of God. That comes from God himself. The instinct, the need to be free. And the central story of the scriptures begins with the Exodus, the Passover. And it is incredibly important. The Passover story is God's freedom agenda. It is God's freedom agenda. The Jewish mind is formed by primarily the Passover. Every single year, they celebrate the hope, the promise of the first fruits. They celebrate the, uh, the unleavened bread of, of being freed from Egypt, free from slavery. They celebrate these, with the sacrifice of the lamb, and they have a feast, and this goes on even today. But it's not just celebrating a past event. It's also looking forward to the future. It's also hoping that what God did in the past, he is going to do again. And they keep doing it over and over again because they know that God's going to do this again and again. And he does do it. And they're waiting for it. Well, go to the next one here. John's gospel is also God's freedom agenda. John's gospel probably emphasizes freedom more than any other book in the New Testament. Maybe with the exception of Romans. But the story of the gospel, the gospel of John, is, revolves around the Passover. This is how the Jewish mind is formed, that they are waiting for God to do this again. And it begins, we you know, in chapter 1, I've gone over this, I've mentioned this, you're probably getting tired of me hearing about this, but in chapter 1 sets the theme for John's story. And then in chapter 2, he immediately says, at the Passover... 
What happens at the Passover? Jesus changes the water to wine, and he goes and symbolically destroys the temple. We're supposed to have the Passover in our mind for this. This is the time of the first fruits. What we, what we that we're hoping for, what we celebrate every year hoping for, Jesus is saying, and John is saying through Jesus, this is actually happening now. The water has turned to wine, to, new, to fresh wine. The temple is being destroyed. The, the, the new temple will be established, but it's in the form of a person. He mentions the second, the second Passover. John mentions three Passovers corresponding to the three years of Jesus' ministry. He mentions the second Passover in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we have that long, sort of somewhat twisted discourse all about the bread of life. But Jesus says, I'm different than Moses. Moses was a great prophet, and he provided you with bread. Well, guess what? Now, I am the bread of life. And you can partake in me. And then finally, the third mention of the Passover is in chapter 13. And it's enormously important that Jesus chose the time of the Passover to go to Jerusalem. It's enormously important that we get that connection, that he says, this is the Passover, and Jesus goes as the Passover lamb to Jerusalem. All of this has the Passover in the backdrop of freedom, of liberty. That is John's, John's mindset. And yes, this freedom looks different than what they expected. It looks a lot different than what they had planned on. And yes, God is, God is opposed to tyranny. God is opposed to dictators. He is opposed to oppression in, in the physical world. But right now, he is looking at inner freedom. And basically, he's saying no matter what the external circumstances are, it's the inner freedom. And it's the inner freedom that, that really drives the external oppression as well. And he says it's this inner freedom, this inner freedom that we can experience now in spite of the circumstances, in spite of our form of government and whoever is here. It's a freedom. And the prophets got that. They told us this way before Jesus arrived. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, well, really all of them. But you hear, see it really plainly written out in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that this is a heart problem. It's not just a problem of weak leadership or bad leadership. It is a problem, Jeremiah says, of the heart. And the time will come when Jesus will come, when, the, when God will free us again, but it will be a change of a new heart. And this is where John is going to. This is where he is headed. It's not what it looked like. It's not exactly what they expected. And when we get to chapter 8, the chapter that, that, that Rob just read, that is the major theme. The major theme is freedom here. He's, in, he's introduced the Passover, the bread of life, and now he's talking about freedom. What is it, how does it begin? It begins with that famous story of the woman caught in adultery. The woman is enslaved, and you've got men accusing her, ready to stone her, because they are enslaved to the law. And Jesus goes, and he writes something on the ground. We don't know what he writes. I'm, I'm thinking that it was something very incriminating to the men around him. It's always interesting to me that they bring the woman to be punished and not the man. And so they're ready to stone her. And he writes something along, and he said, then he goes on, he says, if, you don't, if you've, you've never sinned, if you don't have anything against you, then go ahead, you throw the first stone. And of course, we know the story. They all drop the stones and walk away. Jesus freed them 
from the law at that moment freed them from committing murder. And then he turns to the woman and he frees her from her sin. And he says, I don't condemn you. And when he says, go and sin no more, he's not necessarily reprimanding her. He's telling her to be free. Be free from that. And then you go further on and Jesus starts to tell him about himself and he begins to tell this conversation with the disciples and he says that it's the truth who will make you free. What does he mean by that? He means we need to see things the way God sees them. See them the way God sees them. That is truth. See our sin the way God sees it. See our, our hope the way God sees it. See, see us, see ourselves the way God sees us. See other people the way God sees them. That's the truth. And he says, if any of you sin, you are, still a, you are a slave. And he said, and they respond, we were never slaves. Boy, talk about blustering. Everybody knows that's not true. And Jesus cuts right through it, and he says, if you've ever sinned, you're a slave. If you're sinned, you're a slave. Now, when John uses sin, he almost always uses the singular. And what I think Jesus is saying here, I don't think he's saying, he's talking about some moral glitch or some mistake or some moral, some moral fault that you might have done. I think he's talking about sin with a capital S. He's talking about a power here. And that we are enslaved to this power. And the Bible categorizes that, I believe, as idolatry. That is the dark power that seems to be controlling. That is the, the dark power that seems to be uh, uh, ordering us around, is this power of idolatry. And what is that? It's simply when we take the allegiance that we owe to God and we, and we, we apply it to something else. We take our allegiance that we owe to God and we improperly apply it to something else. And I don't know about you, but I had this question of, of like, okay, God loves me. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? Well, I do it because the idol always promises just a little bit more. Sometimes it promises a lot more. But that idol just says, well, there's something lacking that, that this can fulfill. Protection or greed or lust or whatever it is. This will provide something else for you. And pretty soon, that allegiance starts to take place, take the place of our allegiance to God. Pretty soon that allegiance to that idol starts to play, take the place of our allegiance to our family, to our neighbor, to our duties at work, whatever. And pretty soon that idol then begins to demand sacrifices. And then we start sacrificing to it because that's where our allegiance goes. That's how we fall into it. That's how we get control. And if you just were to flip over a few pages, you'll see exactly how that happens with Caiaphas in chapter 11. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's supposed to be in charge of the, of the temple of Jerusalem, the place where Israel comes to meet God. And what does it become to him? A place of power, a place of political influence, a place of political security. 
And he's saying, if we got to keep our position secure, and so we need to start sacrificing. And what does he plot? He says, we need to kill Jesus. He says, we need to kill Jesus. That's what, that will be our sacrifice. We are going to commit murder in order to save our idol, the political power in Jerusalem. And he says, if we kill one man, then we save the whole country. But of course, the way he was thinking of it is in political terms. And what did it do? It just intensified the slavery. Because 40 years later, Rome comes and they flatten Jerusalem. And the irony is that he was right. That the sacrifice of this one man does save the nation. But not only in, in verse 59 of that chapter, I think it's 59, maybe 52, but in the same chapter he says, not only does it save the nation, it gathers all the scattered children into the family as well. That's you and me. So not only did it save the nation, it's saving all of us. That's freedom. Jesus' death produced freedom. This is true freedom. So how did, what is it Jesus is exactly talking about? He's talking about truth, this perspective that, that it is light. It, it, it is the opposite of darkness. Darkness is associated in John's gospel with sin and with death. Uh, this is, this is kind of goes back to Nicodemus that he's saying that uh, it's just because you're one of the spiritual elite doesn't mean you're part of the family. He's telling the same thing to these people. Just because you're one of the spiritual elite, don't think you're part of Abraham's family. To be genuinely human, to be genuinely bearing God's image, you need to be born again, he says. And you go back to the Samaritan woman who's enslaved by bad decisions of layer after layer after layer of, of sin, of her, her own bad decisions and sin and being abused and used by other people. And, and he's offering this woman forgiveness. And if you want to know how to do it, how to take on this, how to enjoy this freedom, if you're reading John for the first time, you've got to read it all the way to the end. Because in the end, we see how Jesus does it. His sacrifice on the cross and God's resurrection, rising, raising him from the dead. And he, and he meets Mary, Thomas, and Peter. And he gives them freedom from sorrow, freedom from doubt, and freedom from denial. He meets all three of their needs. Because they appropriately responded to that. And so Jesus is saying, the freedom is here for you but you have to appropriately respond to it. You have to receive it. So if I were to define freedom, and I think about freedom, I'd say freedom, I experienced freedom that time when I was loved. Think about that. Think about the time you were loved by maybe a spouse or a friend, a sibling, a parent, Someone who just loved you, remember how freeing that felt. Freedom is being loved. And that's what we get with the Messiah. Freedom is simply being loved. I think about the time Sue and I fell in love. 
And it was the most incredible freeing time. And knowing that I can be me at home because I have a person there who loves me. And when you think about when someone, just a person, loves you, how freeing that is. Well, this is what God is saying. That when you, when, when you feel loved, you will feel free. You will feel free. Just some ways to be, <clears throat> to do this, this to and from sort of thing. What kind of freedom do we have? First of all, we have that freedom to be loved. When that human being, God became that human being who condescended to us and freed us from all illusions that this, all this stuff depends on me, that everything is a gift. And I tell you, if you think the world revolves around you and the world depends on you, that is not liberating. I have lived that way where I feel like the whole thing depends on me. That is not liberating at all. But free to be loved. Go to the next one. We are free to love. We are free to love. We think that we run our life with all these free choices, but in reality, I think most people are just doing what their likes and dislikes order them to do. And basically, they're just sleepwalking through life. They've forgotten what the point of life is. But we are free to love. That we are free to give. Where if we're enslaved by our likes and dislikes, we are not free to do that. Okay, next one. We are free to become the people God wants us to be. We're not free just to do, it's not, life is not just about doing what I want. It's becoming who God wants me to be. And that is not just some static mold that, that God is cookie cutter to everybody else to look the same. That's not that at all. It's this infinite place of growth. It's this infinite place of growing always. Not just here, but, but forever. Completely, continually growing. I mean, most of you know that I, I'm kind of a, a, a science fiction fanatic, and just seeing these things just may, blow my mind. It just, it's just so thrilling to think we'll just grow and grow and grow. Um, I'm gonna, I hope I'm not embarrassing you, Leanne, but, but I, I was talking with Leanne yesterday at, uh, at, at Justin's um, um, celebration of life service yesterday, which is why we had the flowers, and, and Oscar, thanks for the message yesterday. Really appreciate that. But I was talking to Leanne, and this little boy was playing the piano, and she goes, I'm going to learn how to play the piano when I go to heaven. <laughs> and I'm going, that's it. That's this infinite growth that we will experience. We will become the people that God wants us to be. We will also have freedom from the dark power of idolatry. Freedom from being controlled by idolatry. The experiences teach us that when we become a slave to sin, it's not good for anybody. It's pretty miserable, in fact, that when we give in to that, that we, that's because we were not designed to do that. We weren't designed to do that. We are free from, and we are free from shame. Sin enslaves us, and it causes us to hide. Evil is even counting on it. Evil's counting on us to hope, go and hide. But this frees us from shame. It's not just getting things off our chest. That's not God's concern. God's concern is a relationship. It's not just to make you, make you feel better. It's he wants us to, to experience his reckless, raging love. And evil is counting on us to hide away from that. Uh, Rich Mullins 
most, many, many people my age know Rich Mullins. He was a Christian uh, singer who died way too young. Uh, he became famous. He was a good friend of a professor, a Quaker in, uh, at the Friends University, uh, J.B. Smith. And they became really close friends. Well, Rich Mullins said he wanted to share with him all of his sins, he wanted to confess all this. And uh, he, he said he was, uh, James Smith said, okay, if that's what you want to do. And he just started rattling off and he said it was very difficult to hear. And he said, you only know me after I became famous. And a lot of the things I just told you are stuff that I did after I became famous. And he goes, I know it's risky. He said, but I need a friend, not a fan. And he said, that was really hard to hear, but it opened up that relationship. And that's what God wants for us, that we can come clean and be free from shame. But we are also free, go ahead, free to abuse our freedom. We can also abuse it. People will say that God has no boundaries, that he can do with us whatever he wants. And theoretically, that's true. In the abstract, that's true. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has given us freedom. And it's risky. And it's scary. And you just look at Peter at the end. Peter was free to follow Jesus to the house of the chief priest. He didn't have to go, but he did out of loyalty. And when he got there, he was free to agree with the, the, the people there to say, yeah, I am one of Jesus' followers, or he was free to deny it, and he denied it. And it enslaved him even more. He was miserable. He, comes, he runs into Jesus at the end, after Jesus' resurrection, and what does Jesus do? He offers him forgiveness. He invites Peter to love him again, and Peter is free to do that. And he does. And he enters this life of freedom. But if you look at his story, from our perspective, it doesn't look like freedom. It looks like suffering and death. But he was free to love. He was free to give. And the liberator never left his side. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless, the liberator never leaves our side. Here in America, we are very proud of our rights, our freedom of free speech, free market, freedom to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves. We are free to do all of those things, and we ought to be proud of that. We ought to be very happy about that. But these things in the Constitution can only offer us so much freedom. And if we have to depend on that, then we are not going to experience the freedom that God has for us. Good freedoms, but we can't depend on the Constitution to give to us what only God can give to us. Amen. Only He can give us that inner freedom. We have to depend on that. This, we are bigger than citizens of the United States. We are citizens of the realm of God. And that's where freedom is found. And yes, it is scary, it is risky. So risky, so risky, it even killed the Messiah. But that's what God has given us. This morning we're going to celebrate uh, communion, and I can't think of anything that uh, speaks more freedom than communion. 
Uh, I heard a preacher say one time when he gives communion and you take communion with us, he says, I'm going to say two things to you. You are with us now and God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> that is freedom. If you don't have one of these little, uh, little uh, um, two-in-one communion kits, there are some back on the table. Feel free to get up and grab one if you, if you need to get one. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says that, um, uh, he says in verse 29, he says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I don't think, we, I don't think he's talking about hell here, but I do think that if we don't, if we don't take communion seriously, it just does a lot of harm to ourselves and to others. And I think it is good to take some time to examine ourselves, examine what our life is like. Do we take communion and then go off and live a, litur a life liturgy of greed or uh, anger or uh, revenge, those kinds of things? Well, we need to take time to do that and to prepare for that. Um, he also says in verse 10, I mean, chapter 10, he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for will we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And it is not the bread that we break participation in the body of Christ? How differently would we change if we saw every one of us as participating in the blood and the body of Christ? That we take this and we take this symbolically we are actually participating. We are part of the blood and the body of Christ. Now, no church does this perfectly. But the church at its best does that. I've seen a church at its best. I've seen handfuls of people at its best right here. And that's how we approach it. So we're going to take some time in quiet and just to prepare our hearts and uh, then we'll take the communion and uh, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together and then we'll close in a song. So let's take a few moments of, of quiet just to prepare our hearts to take this. <clears throat> 